what is a memory? How do we remember? And what is it that we're actually remembering? Is it the truth of what happened? Or is it a recreation or false facsimile of what we actually wish took place? How can we define truth of an event that's already transpired? Does memory serve as an escape from the present? Or is it a sad reminder of the present moment cut off from past experience? Well, when it comes to Beckett's world, the past is erased, isolated, or directed into distant fragments. Beckett's characters are ever aware of time as time is constantly present to them in their daily routines as habit, as the daily rot, and as their own isolated consciousness. As Beckett himself says of that double-headed monster of damnation and salvation, time itself, there is no escape from hours and days, neither from tomorrow nor from yesterday. There is no escape from yesterday because yesterday has deformed us or been deformed by us. The mood is of no importance. Deformation has taken place. Yesterday is not a milestone that has been passed, but a dry stone on the beaten track of years and irredeemably a part of us within us, heavy and dangerous. We are not only more weary because of yesterday, we are other, no longer what we were before the calamity of yesterday, the aspirations of yesterday, were valid for yesterday's ego, not for today's. But what is attainment? The identification of the subject with the object of his desire. The subject has died, and perhaps many times on the way. For subject B is to be disappointed by the banality of an object chosen by subject A is as illogical as to expect one's hunger to be dissipated by the spectacle of uncle eating his dinner. Our memory then is conditioned through perception. Rather than serving as a moment of discovery and contemplation of reality, it becomes distorted through awareness. Hoo boy. Yeah. And so with that, we're going to be talking about, I think, one of Beckett's strongest memory plays. He definitely has quite a few other ones that we'll get to, too, that deal heavily with memory and time and perception. But this one seems to be kind of the the leader of, uh, of his memory plays, and that's Crap's Last Tape. And I am Will Bixby, and I'm joined, as always, by Cody Tinsley. Cody, how are you? I'm great. Uh, wonderful intro, as always. The um, Yesterday is not a milestone that has been passed, but a dry stone on the track, on the beaten track of years. Man, that's, um, that's something else. Isn't it, though? Jesus really, uh, that's a um, descriptive way of saying that, and it's not a not a happy mind that comes up with a sentence like that. And I think yeah. that is going to be reflected in the text that we're going to be discussing today. I was going to say the, the 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 mind that can crank something like that out definitely has some thoughts when it comes to <laughs> the concepts of memory and time. But so that little snippet and chunk is from um his essays on proust that he wrote i'm blanking on the year but it was one of the first kind of major texts that he wrote was a collection of essays and his thoughts on proust's writing um and it's interesting as we go more and talk about this play there's some heavy um allusions to proust's um work in this show in this concept of involuntary memory but we'll kind of we'll get to that in a minute Uh, i have not read much proust have have you i have not i i've gone through the spark notes (laughs) i mean the spark notes themselves are probably like 
an anthology. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to read some of, of Proust and it's, it's a chore, man. It's a oh, yeah. real chore. He, uh, sentences that go on for pages. Um, but one, one thing that I do like about his writing is that when he finally decides to finish a sentence, it really punctuates. Like yeah. it really lands. And I think that's, that's pretty interesting, but I could not read Proust extensively. It's, it's too much. Yeah, and I, it's funny you say that too, because I think Beckett would probably have agreed with you. There's, <laughs> and this is a guy that wrote like a whole goddamn book all about Proust, but it's funny. There's several letters that he wrote in a collection of his letters that came out a few years ago. And in the back and forth between him and his friend, he's just talking about, you know, God damn it. I have to read more of this Proust. And he's like, I've got <laughs> like 300 and some odd pages left. It's keeping me up at night. I can't stand this shit anymore. <laughs> I got this deadline coming up. I need to write about it. I'm still not even done reading them. I hate this. <laughs> you got 300 pages good. left. It's about two sentences. Yeah. <laughs> the last one's like, I finally finished reading it. <laughs> now I can start writing about it. I don't have to read this ever again. <laughs> um, so I actually found also a, a quote by Beckett on on Proust, um, or something. I, I think it was in it, it may have been from that same thing where he says that that life is habit, or rather life is a succession of habits, since the individual is a succession of individuals, and that really um, applies to this particular text absolutely and that's awesome you pulled back that is actually from the same uh, is it really little section yeah yeah it's all about time and memory and habit it talks a lot about his thoughts on on habit and as we will talk about mr crap is all about uh <laughs> his his habitual routines and his practices but i have just honestly i think it's just two bullet points on on a brief little bio on this play so this play is I would call it a monologue. It's just one character that does the speaking, though not all the speaking is directly from the character on stage. Some of it is through pre-recordings that are played back. But it's just one person that only ever does the talking. So we'll call it a monologue. It's uh, rather short. It's a short, the shortest piece that we've looked at so far. Uh, it premiered October 29th, 1958. So Beckett actually wrote this specifically for an Irish actor named Patrick McGee. Mm -hmm. And I, the original title of the show is actually McGee Monologue because he <laughs> wrote it directly for this person because he really liked the way that his voice sounded. <laughs> and he thought that his voice would be cool. <laughs> right, because didn't, didn't McGee, he like read some stuff, or like he, he had done some Beckett stuff beforehand yeah. and Beckett was like, oh, I like, I like this guy. Exactly, right, yeah. Monologue. McGee read some of uh, his novel Malloy on yes. like TV or something on the radio or something and Beckett overheard it and he's like, ooh, yeah, this guy, this, guy. <laughs> this guy's got a voice. I'm going to write a whole monologue just for him. <laughs> and he did. He did. And uh, yeah, so 1958 was when it came out. And since then, there's been several pretty landmark um, productions of the play with some pretty high profile actors. I picked out what were the most notable two in my mind, but that was uh, Harold Pinter's, uh, Harold Pinter's version from 2006 in which he played the part entirely in a wheelchair, which is interesting. So they kind of removed the opening sequence of the banana peel and slipping right. on the peel and the pratfall. 
and then of course the John Hurt production uh, for BBC's Beckett on Film series. And John Hurt actually went on to perform the role live uh, in a handful of theater productions after that film production because uh, so many directors were like, God damn, this guy gets it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the one that I watched for this and it rules. It rules hard. It rules yeah. so hard. He's, he's an incredible man. Oh, yeah. It's a powerhouse performance. It, it really, really is. is. It's, it's just stupid. It's one of those that you watch and you're like, man, screw you for being so good. Like this, this is just like, I'm never going to be able to attain that. Uh, it's a really, really strong performance. Oh, totally. And I watched uh, both of those that I just mentioned. So the John Hurt and the Harold Pinter one before we did this. And it was fun because I've never actually seen the Harold Pinter one before, but I had seen the John Hurt one several times. Right. And Harold Pinter's is great. It's he's you know fantastic theater person. He's done every facet of it, but you know he's a great actor. But the John Hurt version, he's so good at capturing the just soul crushing seriousness of these silent moments. But then at the drop of a hat, his business with the banana and his stupid pratfalls, like he nails the comedy in it in a way that. I don't know. I never really would have expected that John Hurt would have been able to to nail the comedic in the way that he does. And it's this brilliant blending where it's like, oh man, I'm feeling all kinds of things. All kinds <laughs> this of 40 things. minute production. What's going on? And you, you touched on something there that I think is important because you said it was 40 minutes long. This show is only nine total pages of text mm. and <laughs> no production that I could find is less shorter than 30 minutes. No. It's all between 30 minutes and an hour. Man, you got to chew that text. Like you got to oh, yeah. really, really dig into it to I mean, like to stretch that out. It's nine pages of text, most of which is pre-recorded. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny you said that because I did this kind of backwards. I watched it first and then I was like, oh, that was fun to watch. Let me reread it because it had been several years since I've read the actual script of it. And I was done in like 12 minutes and I was like, Oh shit, that's it. <laughs> I was like, Oh wow. We're, we're, we're finished it. It really moves quite quick when it's all in my head. Cause you know, your mind is skipping over every other word in the text is the word pause, pause stage direction. It's Absolutely. Like one word, pause, next word, pause, this word, pause. <laughs> it's just like, when you read it, you're done. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, and there we go. I, I, I found it so interesting because the, the one we talked about, uh, in the last episode was um, Happy Days. And it's just the opposite. Winnie is always talking. Always, always, always. And it's they're both intensely demanding on the actor, but for two polar opposite reasons. Winnie is always talking, always talking, always talking. It's just one long, mo- it really is just a long monologue. Whereas Crap, like most of your job as the actor is to listen <clears throat> to yourself. You're listening to uh, different versions of yourself, but you're listening to yourself. And like I said, nine pages and you got to manufacture almost an hour out of it, man. You got to, you got to really chew that text. It's, uh, it's impressive. That that's what makes those performances. So uh, a facet of what makes those performances so impressive is that they find moments that are genuine that uh, cover that time. Absolutely. Well, we both kind of said it already, but I guess to do a plot summation, <laughs> I guess if you if you could call it that, of this play, I think again of 
the three that we've done, this being the third so far, this one probably has the most tangible storyline sure. or, or plot to it. It's essentially uh, a 69-year-old man named Crap, fun joke, who sits on a stage and he listens to recordings of himself uh, going through his year. So it seems to be a birthday anniversary that he likes to do is on the, the anniversary of his birth. He goes through and he does a recording about what's happened to him throughout that previous year, where he's at and uh, where he hopes to be in the next coming year. So in this moment of his life, we watch the 69 year old version of crap, listen to the 39 year old version of crap, talk about his life and also talk about the what 20 something year old yeah, like um, 20s, version of crap who then also talks shit about the like 13 year old version <laughs> so it's like this russian nesting doll of yes. uh, craps talking about each other and it's it's that's it that's the end of the show he he, he <laughs> attempts to record things on his own of this year of him being 69 he struggles through that and then he plays the recording again and it kind of reaches the end of its spool and clicks into the darkness as he sits alone and the lights go down. <laughs> a nice little little happy uh, uplifting now, tableau to, to close the night off. <laughs> I want to, before we get into the uh, headier things here, just want to make sure. like just a quick dive uh, <laughs> deviation. Can we get my man some fiber? Can we... Can we get my man some fiber? Our boy's struggling for decades True. to get well, his digestive situation under control. And he just, he couldn't do it. He just keeps, he keeps, you know, shoving those bananas. And it's, yeah. you got to eat something else. You know, he's always talking about self-improvement. Maybe you can fade that six banana and choke down some oat bran, son. Like, yeah. What is it? Six bananas and... How many times did he pop a cork when he's running off, off to the side stage? At least like six or seven. <laughs> Dude's just down in bottles back there. You need to get regular before you start making any kind of philosophical change. <laughs> he's he's talking true. about it in his early 20s. He's got digestive problems yeah. and he's just shoving them bananas down. <laughs> what are you doing? That's not good. Well, and it's fun too that you say that because like, is it, in this infinite nesting dolls of, of craps. I think it's, he's either talking about the 20 version of himself or the 30 some year old version of himself and his bananas. And he's like, you know, man in my condition, I got to cut that habit. <laughs> and as he's saying that this old man version's got one in his pocket. He just scarfed down like three earlier in the five minute sequence that we saw him. It's like, Oh, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> yeah. And he says he needs to stop drinking. He's fucking popped like six corks already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't changed a thing not at all he's he's going the opposite direction it's not good <laughs> but that's the plot that's that's all we get and like you said most productions are right yeah i'm right there with you i haven't seen anything less than 30 minutes in the the looks that i was doing they're usually like 40 45 mm -hmm. just because of that immense moments of pause and silence that are both written into the script and that the actors definitely mine and uh and find some extra moments for sure yeah and that um it finding those moments what what makes that that role so interesting is like it, yeah you have to find those moments but those like they can be anything like what what he's seeing and i i'm speaking mainly of the john hurt version because that's the one that i saw you can tell that he is he's seeing 
something in his memories, right? And oftentimes the, the text isn't always explicit about what the memory is. You kind of get snippets here and there. But in my opinion, he sees it very clearly. He, he sees whatever his version of it is very clearly and tangibly. And it's, it's like those moments of silence where you're watching him remember, you know, trying to recover lost dreams or whatever it is. It's just, oh, it just gut punches you, man. And it's really powerful. It really is quite powerful. Absolutely. And it's good that you mentioned that about this idea of him listening to the memory and then him stopping it, stopping the tape and fast forwarding and rewinding because he knows what is coming and he doesn't want to hear it. He wants to skip over it. And that kind of gets into these ideas of what uh, Proust called involuntary memory and then what Beckett kind of extrapolated upon further in his writings about Proust of talking about both involuntary and voluntary memory and kind of the difference between the two. So I read in some interesting essays that was talking about how Crap's Last Tape is kind of a, a parody almost of uh, Proust's work that the English version of it is In Search of Lost Time. And this is a famous seven-part novel that originated the term of involuntary memory. And in the first part of the novel, there's a pretty famous sequence where someone dunks a Madeline cookie into a cup of tea and then takes a bite of it. And as soon as they bite down, they're instantly flashed with a memory of their childhood and it involuntarily comes upon them. And it's like this sensory memory, like it, I'm sure it's happened to you before you smell something or you taste something and then instantly childhood or a, a moment in time is just like, well, you're suddenly living right through it and right there in it. And so there's some scholarly articles that are talking about how Beckett, since he was so knowledgeable and wrote ad nauseum about Proust, is poking fun of that idea of this involuntary memory being brought forth by an oral fixation of eating, which is why he's always having crap shove bananas in his mouth. <laughs> and then despite him constantly eating them, no involuntary memory comes. He eats a banana and he doesn't have a sudden moment and striking of, oh, I need to, I know what to do next. He just stands there. He stands there, He just yeah. sits there and he waits for something to happen and nothing ever does because he doesn't have that kind of access to an involuntary memory, which is why he has to go and grab these recordings and physically play it and physically cause the memories to come back into his head. He has to operate that mechanism that shoots the memory back into his brain. And I thought it was an interesting way to look at <laughs> the, yeah, those I, two that, texts. I had certainly never heard that before, that, but that it is, was pretty fascinating. That really is. Um, do you, this is tangentially related, whenever, whenever you eat a banana, do you just violently rip off the entire peel? Because that's, no. my man John Hurt was having no bullshit whenever it came to those bananas. He just ripped the entire oh, peel yeah. off, threw it down, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are all, are all productions like that, or is that just him? I don't really know. I think in the uh, Harold Pinter one, they didn't do the banana stuff right. at all. That was kind of cut. I did come across one particular essay that was all about one uh, production of this in Germany, and it was just a guy talking about how the actor that played crap before they would start the show, he did a little seminar with some of the um, reviewers and like some of the scholars that came to watch it on how to properly eat a banana in one bite. And he gave them like a seminar series on how to peel the entire thing. And the, so the whole movement was three strokes. So it's like peel one, peel two, in the mouth, swallow three. And it was like this whole sequence and like it was a very fascinating piece. I'll try and find it and 
when we post this, I'll, I'll <laughs> link to it in the comment or something because it was it was a wild ride. But it's interesting that you bring that up with the John Hurt thing because now it's starting to make sense why he was so so fixated on this banana business because that is certainly not how I eat it. It's no, a, he it's just a much slower process. No, yeah, he goes in like an animal, just, rawr, just destroys the peel and just is like, and then just stands there like you said, which, yeah, that that's a that's a great parallel to draw that that evokes no sense memory and so he has to use the machine and the other thing is that whenever he uses the machine he feels things far more like when when he has that banana in his mouth he doesn't feel anything he just kind of stands there but he has very visceral reactions to some of the things that he hears he throws off some of the old spools and and boxes and everything after hearing one memory yeah that's an interest i would have never made that connection Right? No, same here. I read that and was like, that's a, huh, this starting to starting to make a little sense. <laughs> but I thought that that was a pretty fascinating read. And in uh, Beckett's writing about Proust, he has this wonderful one little uh, one-liner where he just says, the whole of Proust's world comes out of a teacup. And I think that that's, <laughs> it's, it's wonderfully Beckett in the way that he says it with just a, a twinge of snark you can kind of uh, point out in there but it, it's it's fun the way that he talks about the world is, uh, comes out of that teacup and so right in that sentence where he's talking about Proust he's kind of mapping out his worldview of what memory is and that memory is reality memory is a world and how memory can just be produced out of absolutely nothing and it just appears and we we live in it and so that's I don't really come into this with too many long thought out thoughts or articles or essays written on, on any of these themes of this play. But when you and I kind of talked about it before uh, we started recording, we kind of landed on the major themes and that's of memory and of time and what those things mean and the permutations of memory and of time and how Beckett thinks about those two things uh, in the presentation of, of this play. And it seems to me anyway, and especially in what he's written about Proust and what he writes about in here, is that memory isn't truth necessarily. It's that when we're trying to remember something, we're automatically putting in our own feelings in the current present into something that happened in the past. And so when we watch crap, listen to himself. When he comes through to certain moments and he knows what's about to be said, he stops the recording because he doesn't want to hear it or maybe there's another motive or something like that Mm -hmm. so in those moments when he's stopping the recording he's essentially stopping memory he's stopping time and he's changing memory he's changing it because he knows what it actually is and he doesn't like it so he's altering his own perceptions of memory right there on the spot and that's such a fascinating way to kind of approach (laughs) how memory and how time works and how it's all essentially boiled down to your perception of it whether or not you want to believe that the memory is actually what happened or if you want to alter it and come up with your own reality. And I don't really know <laughs> what, to, what to make of that, really what, what to say of that, that worldview. So I'm hoping, hoping maybe you can help me. I don't know, I don't know yeah. what to think of that. <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the time that he stopped, or excuse me, he fast-forwarded it, fast-forwarded, mm. whatever, um, that was most striking to me is it's, I, th- I believe it's his 39 year old self that he's listening to. 
well, it's, that's mm-hmm. the only one he actually listens to. That 39-year-old self comments about the younger, even younger crap. So he's listening to the 39-year-old self who is talking, and he's about to make some revelation, uh, some grand revelation that he is going to change his life or whatever. And that's when the 69-year-old crap decides to stop the tape and fast forward. And so that, to me, he doesn't want to remember that or he doesn't want to think about that because wrong it's clearly wrong and he you know that 39 year old crap when you listen to him he speaks with a little bit of pomposity a little bit of yeah. arrogance and if he can if he can take take away that profound mistake which is this you know statement on his life or meaning of life or whatever and not have to listen to it again, then he can look back on his 39-year-old self with a little bit kinder eyes than maybe he would if he actually listened to it and been like, you idiot. And he does that anyways, right? Like he, (laughs) absolutely. every version of crap looks down their nose upon the previous version of crap. And maybe that's him trying to be, to let himself off the hook a little bit. I don't know. Um, it seems like that might be a little bit antithetical to the character because the character really likes talking shit. <laughs> and his I name's mean, crap after all. Name, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really likes talking mess. Oh yeah. He's a, uh, he's a little salty for sure. No, I like, <laughs> so there's a couple times when he does that, but I think the first part where you see that for sure is like you're saying, it seems to be his past self on the recording is going to announce some like big revelation that, that he's, he's come across about his life, what his life means. And so he says, what I suddenly saw then was this, that the belief I had going on all my life, namely, and he switches it on. Yeah. <laughs> he just and cuts I, it. Yeah, he just cuts it. And I love the stage direction there. He switches off impatiently. And so he's like, no, 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 I don't have time to listen to this bullshit. And he like fast forwards it. And he's, his old self is still going off ad nauseum about it. he's like no 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 still not there and he's like i don't i don't want to listen to this crap anymore and i <laughs> it, this this play is really funny <laughs> it which is. is is pretty fascinating because it's it's a rather bleak piece and a bleak commentary on how memory and time kind of functions and how it's all our perception of of how the world works and if it's all of our perception does that mean that any of it is even real or that any of it even <laughs> matters and it's this whole very sad existentialist kind of road that you can get caught on but I love it because there's so many bits of humor in this, in this show. It's, it's one of his funnier ones. I think there's this great bit. Uh, so he says, he's listening to his past self and it goes, the aspirations brief laugh on uh, which crap joins and the resolutions brief laugh in which crap joins to drink less in particular brief laugh of crap alone. I love that <laughs> <laughs> little sequence. So he's listening to his old self. His old self laughs and he joins. He, he remembers the joke. He's like, ah, that was funny. And then the third time, it's not a joke to the past self, but it's very much a joke to his present self. And he, he cracks himself up. It's some funny <laughs> shit, man. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good like, little bit. It's a rule of threes. It's, it's got an old man laughing about how he's a drunk now. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's fun stuff. And then, and then you watch the end and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm so sad. <laughs> oh, man. It doesn't get better, right? It oh. doesn't get better. Which is, I mean, par for the course for Beckett. But yeah, you're right. Like he, he laughs at himself and he's always kind of laughing at the snarkiness of his former self, but he's even more snarky now. Like he's arguably more snarky now than it's a different kind of snark. It's just more jaded than snark. 
but he's arguably more petty now than he was at 39. And for him to just like, yeah, that didn't work. I'm drinking right now. I'm going to go pop a cork. I was going to say cork number 12. Let me just go. <laughs> I don't know what he's drinking, but he drinks them so quickly. He just, smashes like, them. Like there's a brief beat in between the first four corks that he, this dude goes through. So he's just, he's hammering he's having it. a good time. And like you, <laughs> you hear bottle against glass. Like that's a, that's a stage direction is bottle against glass clink. And he's, that means he's just pounding it, man. Like he's just pounding them. I mean, in his defense, it is his birthday. Yeah, and he's he's all alone in this dark labyrinth nest of tin boxes full of recording. It's just it's a very interesting setup. This dude's rocket. <laughs> and I, I think, that, <laughs> yeah, he's a hermit of some kind. I, I yeah, seemingly you know, so. <laughs> I, the the way that the the script goes, it initially leads you to believe that this is like an annual tradition that he does this mm-hmm. every year. But the way the set is set up and the, the busyness of the set, there's a lot going on, True. would also lead you to believe that it's not just an annual thing. Like, it's a, like he says, box three, spool five. You got to right. go through a lot of tape. A That's lot. A, a, a lot of tape. Let's say he started, he has one when he's in, at least we know in, at 39 so he probably at minimum he has 30 years of tapes either 30 tapes total but probably not like the the way the set is he's got a lot so yeah he's i i it led me to believe that he was a little bit more obsessive about chronicling everything than maybe just taking the year in in perspective that's a really interesting point. I never thought of it that way because that gives you a kind of different read on who he is as a dude. Because, I mean, it's I, I personally find it a little strange enough, even if it's just an annual thing that you yeah. do on your birthday. But, hey, we all have our traditions. We all have our little little fun birthday uh, uh, fun that we like to have with ourselves. Why not? But So I see it maybe that if he is going through the whole year of his life, that would probably take up a couple spools but not nearly as enough as what the set dressing implies. So then if he is chronicling other days, maybe every day or every week or every month or something like that, then that kind of leads a different interpretation of the, of the character than this sort of heavily neurotic kind of controlling, I guess you would, you would call it sort of personality where he's, he's wanting to archive and document every single moment of his life. So is it then that he can look back on it and kind of pick it apart and analyze it and see where he went wrong? Or is it, I guess that's the main question I have really is why is he doing this? Is it to look back on his former self to say, ah, you idiot, like you did it wrong. I should have done this or to look back on his former self and say, "Ah, I'm so much smarter than I was now. Is it as a critique of his past self or is it to embolden his current self? I think it's that. That's that's yeah. what I think, I, and I think he achieves that by critiquing his younger self, sure. right? I would make it the way that I read the character, or the way that I interpreted it, is that he he chronicles a lot of things, probably more than probably everything, and that yeah. that is what ultimately led to where he is at now. He lost everything. He is not a happy individual. He has nobody around him to speak of. He, he has a, a, a 
an occasional visit from a prostitute. Right. That's his only seeming human contact. I, the way that I read it was that it's, it was this compulsion or this need to record everything and chronicle everything um, that led him to where he is right now. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. That's really cool. I never thought of it that he's <laughs> recording everything. God, there's got to be, think of how many tins of spools there are that's just dedicated to him talking about his bowel movements. Like <laughs> what, it, what it looked like today. Or his How'd lack thereof. Yeah, exactly. His, his failure to pass. A <laughs> <laughs> whole shelf is dedicated just for those. <laughs> what, what, uh, unattainable laxation. That's it's right. one of those in there. Like what a phrase, huh? unattainable How, laxation. What, I had to what? look that up. I was like, "Does that mean what I think it means?" It did. It absolutely it did. did. He mentions it. He mentions digestive trouble. He mentioned. He mentions it like three times that he he has digestive issues. And so, one of the things that uh, that I found whenever we were whenever I was researching this is like this is pretty heavily autobiographical. Like this is mm-hmm. very reminiscent of who Beckett was, or it was. It was a pretty good indicator of who Beckett was. He drank a lot, from what I understand. Did do, do you know? Did he have some uh, some bowel issues? So I don't want to misspeak, but I, I think that he had something going on. And I remember when we did the episode on Endgame. Some of the stuff that I had talked about was his other medical issues that he came about or came about him when he was in hiding from the uh, Nazis during the onset of World War II. He had some mm-hmm. pretty serious leg issues. It wouldn't be surprising if he had some rather bad digestive issues during the time that's with all the stress and everything going on. I'm sure it was difficult to to pass things normally (laughs) during that time. But you're right. There is a heavily autobiographical function of this, which is interesting to me because when he wrote this, he was pretty well established. Uh, I mean, Godot had already come out. Uh, He had had a pretty decent amount of success from that piece. And so he writes this monologue about this character who does mention his writings and how you know i forget what he says how many copies have sold or, yeah. or something like that like, you know he's he, it, he always it, it, seems like he's on the cusp of something brilliant it's like yeah. i'm almost there like we're, we're, we're nearly there we're nearly going to get there and back at, at the time kind of seemed like he already was there right like he he did struggle for sure for many right. years in his original writings not, none of his ships sold and so maybe he was recalling that memory and he was again, kind of <laughs> living out his philosophy on how memories work. He 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 was writing this story about this character who's struggling with his writing, and he was recalling his own memories of how he struggled, and maybe his recollection of the memory was different than how it actually went down. And that's yeah, that's pretty fascinating. But yeah, there's definitely a there's some some of Beckett in uh, himself in this play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. like, we get to, we get to peer back behind the curtain. Yeah, like all the the, the mentions of the of the girl in green and like all of mm-hmm. his lost love. Uh, from what I understand, that was a not so veiled allusion to his cousin. Is that correct, mm-hmm. Peggy? Yeah, cousin Peggy, who I believe was his first uh, true love. From what I mm-hmm. understand, um, no judgment. No, hey, you know, you, you do you, Sam. That's right. Hey, we we've all got our vices, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, you're you're definitely right. And I I would need to look up a little bit more on my 
Beckett biography, but this is also not one of the first pieces he's written where a character spends some time with a prostitute. He, he definitely writes about that quite a bit and this idea of an older man, kind of a feebled man, only getting this sort of sexual gratification from a woman that he essentially services that he purchases. There's, um, it's a TV piece, I believe it was originally written for TV from him. It's called A Joe and it's a uh, monologue piece as well. And so we will get to it at some point. It's really, really fascinating piece. It's all from a woman's point of view. She's woman is speaking uh, to this man, Joe, and we never see where she is. So it's seemingly inside of his mind, but uh, that camera is however many distance away. And as she speaks, the camera slowly inches closer towards his face. And then anytime he looks his eye into the camera, she stops speaking and it stops moving. And then when he looks away, it starts getting closer and closer until it's this superimposed close-up right into his eye as she's antagonizing him and speaking to him and kind of tearing his mind apart, essentially. But there's heavy uh, references in that piece to this old man only being able to get it off to a prostitute, and she's kind of jiting him and making fun of him for, for you know his sexual ineptitude and that kind of thing. And there's lots of very interesting kind of scholarly articles written about the comparisons between Crap's Last Tape and A. Joe, and almost as if it's a continuation or maybe an alternate version of the same character, where instead of him listening to recordings of memory, he's tortured by the recitation of his own memories by a second person who's he's kind of right. forcing him to relive them in his own mind. And so these ideas of, of memory are, Beckett has a lot to say about them. And it's, it's very obvious that memory played a big part in his life. And I mean, when you look through the stuff that the guy went through, I guess that that kind of makes sense. I mean, he lived through one of the most tumultuous, violent times in, you know, global history. He saw pain and death and suffering firsthand. And so I would imagine that he does have, or did have a few memories that were rather torturous to kind of uh, involuntarily be forced back into his head. It'd be really hard to look back at yourself, your younger self, who went through that and you are you're trying to survive right because he was hiding from the nazis it would be hard to look back at yourself and not question why you didn't do more yeah right right and you would be very harsh and hard on yourself um like well, why didn't you do you had these grand ideas you had these big thoughts why didn't you do more like what did you really do like what did you achieve it was <clears throat> living through a time like World War II when, uh, I mean, Beckett was, he was certainly not super privileged, but he was in a sure. better spot than a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, it would be hard to look back and be like, how responsible, how much responsibility do, does my younger self hold for some of the stuff that went on during that time? It would be you. I'm so glad that I didn't live during that time. Like it would be, I would be horrible to have that burden on yourself. But then again, like who's to say that in 20 years, I won't look back on myself now and say like, well, what did you really do during this time? Like, what did you really do to contribute or to fix or to try and help whatever we're going through now? It's, I, it's very human. Absolutely. Yes. It's a very, human way of looking at things. And I think that this is one of his most 
human plays. Like this is, I think that this is one of his most approachable texts. It's certainly the most approachable one that we've looked at so far. Like it is still absurd. It's still his kind of, his, his brand <laughs> is, yeah, is on yeah. point in this text for sure. I mean, when you look at it, it's kind of a simple, straightforward text. It's a man listening to recordings of himself and that's it. Whereas all these other ones, there's been, you know, mutilated bodies and trash cans, women buried up to their neck in a ever <laughs> climbing pile of dirt. There's a lot more kind of, whoa, what's going on here exactly? But this one is kind of seemingly realistic. Like you could see this actually happening. This, is, this could be a real person doing these very real things. And I think that that's super interesting because it makes his philosophy or his mindset or his viewpoint on how memory works and what time is more approachable. It makes his philosophy more uh, acceptable for the audience to receive. So instead of them having to sit there and like, what the hell are the people in the trash cans? What the hell is that about? It's like, oh, I understand what Beckett's telling me right now. I yeah. understand. He, he's telling me that, you know, when we look back at our memories, that's all we have. All we have are the, the snapshots, the snippets, the recordings of what we used to be and what we did. And we can either look at that and smile or we can look at it and nitpick and wish that we had done something different and keep wishing that we had lived a different life while our current life slowly slips away from us into the dark. Yes. And <laughs> that's, a, that's a very depressing mindset, but it's, it's a very real one. Like he, he kind of hits the nail on the head, I think, with that. It's, I don't want to jump ahead to like an ending here because we still have quite a lot to talk no, about. Yeah, no, but that's exactly that kind of that segues uh, pretty succinctly into the way that I took this script because I, it, it was hard to really nail down a direction that I wanted to go because you could, I mean, there's a million ways you could interpret this show, but I settled on hindsight because it's, the play is so human and uncharacteristically human of Beckett. Like, like you said, you yeah. can see that this is based in realism, which is strange mm -hmm. for him, out of, the, out of the norm for him. And hindsight is uniquely human. I mean, to my knowledge, I don't know of any animal that, that has hindsight. And, yeah. you know, hindsight is, is, it should be our, our greatest tool, one of our greatest assets, because it's, it's one of the things that is unique to us. And yet, way too often, it is our biggest downfall the show hit me harder than either of the previous two that we've done because the character of crap is way closer and more relatable than any of the characters in either endgame or happy days mm -hmm. not a replica by any means right. <laughs> but there <laughs> you can see a lot of i could see a lot of myself in some of the things that each of the younger selves, each of Crap's younger selves are saying about their respective younger selves. And so, like, if I get too self-referential, sorry about you, but... Not at all. You know, the this last... The, moment. <laughs> the The first two episodes, I just spent indicting the world, like, <laughs> just ranting and indicting right. the world. Let's... let's shine that light on on me let's bring it's only it back. fair yeah let's <laughs> let's own it there's such a <laughs> there's such a deep loneliness in all of the versions of crap all of mm -hmm. them are lonely and it's exclusively self-imposed right and 
either it's self-imposed because he is insistent on chronicling everything or it's self-imposed because he's just kind of an unbearable human being. I, either, either one is possible. That the upturned nose of the 20-something crap who looks down on his youth and is like ready to be done with it. Oh man, like that's just, I could just see myself like that tw- 19, 20 year old edgelord fucking Cody Tinsley. Who's like people of my generation don't get it. Oh, it's just disgusting, man. <laughs> just living in this flimsy ass ivory tower thinking how great I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then the 39 year old crap, sees that 20 year 27 we'll say whatever sees that that 20 the 20s year old and it's just like you idiot like you you don't have any life experience you you have these huge ideas but you got all these faults that you need to fix and the the passage that i like is this is the 39 year old crap uh speaking he says hard to believe i was ever that young whelp the voice jesus and the aspirations and the resolutions to drink less in particular. Statistics, 1,700 hours out of the preceding 8,000-odd consumed on licensed premises alone. I mean, I spent some time in bars in my 20s. Spent some time in bars in my 20s. Oh, yeah. More than 20%, say 40% of his waking life. I don't know if it was that much. That's, that's extensive. That's a lot. Uh, plans for a less engrossing sexual life. Never a problem for me. (laughs) (laughs) Suck on that crap. (laughs) Last illness of his father. This is the one that got me flagging pursuit of happiness. Unattainable laxation. As we've talked about sneers at what he calls youth and thanks to God that it's over. Uh, Even at 20, he's He's resolved to not being happy, flagging pursuit of happiness. He's done. Mm-hmm. He's, he's tapped out. And boy, as a millennial at 25 years old, you could see it. You could see like we ain't, we don't have a shot in the world. We don't have a shot. And you, you could feel the bitterness. I could feel the bitterness and the resolution to that reality creep in already but you still have grand ideas right you still have like you like well maybe i can break the mold maybe i can beat the odds right i can change I'm the different. world i'm different no you're not yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> i'm now less than a month away from turning 30 and i find myself doing very similar things as the middle-aged crap yeah, it's it's so easy to make fun of your younger self. I've already done it multiple times here. For all just being full of piss and vinegar, and all, all of the changes that he plans on making, all the plot, flaws that he plans on fixing, none of them, if any, come to fruition. He still drinks on the daily, still scarfing down those bananas. He, uh, I guess he's pulled back on the sex. He only visited, he only has the uh, the occasional prostitute. And, you know, I haven't made the same mistakes, which is good. Yeah, I I wasn't as foolish as him because uh, I didn't pass on my shot at love. He just kind of 
seemed to tap out of it. I, yeah. I, I don't, I didn't understand what his motivation was for, was he just not feeling it? Which is why, which is why I was led to believe that he just chronicled everything and that's what led to his downfall because I couldn't fathom other than, you know, maybe he's just an unbearable human. I, I'm definitely jaded, but I've been fortunate enough to find someone in my wife who won't allow me to become that bitter old man who only lives life in the present by looking into the past. And I'm deeply thankful for that. <laughs> deeply thankful for that. I have avoided the loneliness that has contributed to much of, if not all of, Kraps's problems. Now, he's just lonely. He's deeply lonely, and he, he doesn't know how to not be. I think he kind of relishes in that as well. Yeah, I think, well, first, that was wonderful. I appreciate you going through <laughs> turning the turning the lens back on yourself there for a, roast yourself for a, for a few minutes give the world a break we'll get back to the world though yes yeah. there's, there's plenty of beckett plays where we can hate on society <laughs> but <laughs> i think that there maybe is a in his loneliness he relishes in it maybe a little bit because mm -hmm. maybe in his loneliness is the only way that he can affect any kind of control in in his isolation he controls his routine, his habit. Right. He's the master of his domain. We spoke at length about routine and, and controlling your surroundings with happy days in the last one. But he's very much in the same vein of that. He's, he controls his little microcosm, his little planet, his little environment. Mm -hmm. And it is at the behest of pushing everyone else in his life seemingly away. I mean, you mentioned the, his failures of, of love and not really knowing what the motivation of kind of giving up on that is. I don't really think the motivation in that is extrapolated upon or, or really focused on in the text. That's just who he is as a character where he maybe he couldn't control the other person. He can't control that. And so he gives it up. He has that nice line where he literally just says farewell to love. And he just kind of bon voyage. See you later. Goodbye. And he, just, it, he just lets it go. It is a, it's really illustrated how, how in his own world he is. Cause in one of the tapes, he comments on his little hanging light that he loves yeah. so much. <laughs> and it like the light is at the center of his world. Mm -hmm. It illuminates his little world and on the periphery, it's just darkness. And that's exactly who he is. He is himself at his center, but beyond that, it's just vague hints at things and that is yeah. depressing man <laughs> it's just depressing <laughs> like it's just memories right like he lives mm -hmm. through memories it's the the incessant chronicling of life has led to acute unhappiness he only has memories of himself he spends his time remembering memories of himself which is like is some low-hanging fruit. If you want to talk about social media, right? right? Talk about cell phones and actually being present, which is hypocritical. So yeah. I'll just hang that pitch out there for you if you want to knock it in the cheap seats. I'll, I'll, I'm going to write it down on the sticky note. <laughs> we might come back to it because that's a that's an interesting point. <laughs> he yeah he, he he like lives through his jaded former selves, which then compound his current jaded state like he just gets more and more jaded because he's listening to his jaded selves and 
there's a, a professor, Eugene Webb. Do you, do you know this individual? Yeah, he wrote a mm-hmm. book. It's called like The Plays of Samuel Beckett. And one of the quotes from it that I thought was brilliant on this particular text, he says that the, the various eras of crap are by certain, con- by certain continuities, princip- principally a continuous egoism, which ironically isolates them from another, from one another by the mutual lack of sympathy it engenders. Each despises the others. They can't stand each other. And yet they're the same person. So it's just, you're just watching somebody's self-loathing expanded throughout the years. And man, that's dangerous, but it's easy to do. Right. It's easy to do. I I love that quote. And that's such a clear critique that Beckett has of the, the human condition. But I mean, I kind of, I can kind of understand where he's coming from and how often would you look back on past versions of yourself, no matter what the decision was or the action that you took, how often do you actually look back and go like, Hey, yeah, that was a good call. You nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it. Right. Almost never. Right. There's like a few, very, very few times, maybe like big landmark decisions where you're like, you know what? I, I kind of played that out right. But the majority, the overwhelming majority are always like, ah, oh, you dumbass. Or like, what were you thinking? It's always that look back with our, our knowledge now. Now we can look back and, and understand what we had done wrong. But at the time, we don't have that, that kind of knowledge. One of the best illustrators of that is, um, I'm a big sports fan, huge sports fan. And there are interviews with legends of the sport football basketball they've won multiple championships multiple championships and when you ask them which do you remember more the wins or the losses they can tell you to a play the losses and they'll count the wins as a blur like i don't really remember that but they can tell you specific plays that they think changed the game in their championship losses and that's just so human like they have achieved at a remark a legendary level and they still can't let themselves off of the hook like they remember their failures more than they do their legendary wins and it's like man if they can't do it it's <laughs> <laughs> a schmuck like me can be able to yeah, do. <laughs> like what am i supposed to do i've never won a super bowl right no that's 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 totally true there's such an idea in uh critique or not really critique just laying it out and understanding of this idea of failure and and how failure is such a motivator for our actions but how our desire to overcome our failures and to better them and our ambition to become a better person can often lead to choices and decisions that fuck ourselves up in the long run anyway i mean the very last line of the play itself is perhaps my best years are gone when there is a chance of happiness, but I wouldn't want them back. Not with the fire in me now. No, I wouldn't want them back. Crap motionless staring before him. The tape runs on in silence. And that's just, that is like the, the thesis of his whole little monologue is he's listening to this past version of himself who's critiquing his past version of himself, looking back and saying like, hey, you know, I made some mistakes. Hey, I fucked up at that 
failure has emboldened me. It's lit this fire. I'm going to take this fire and I'm going to take the world. I'm going to do everything better this time around. And if I could go back, I wouldn't because why would I want a shot at happiness when I know that I can be better than I was and I can't wait to see what's in my future. And then it cuts to this old man with a rotten banana in his pocket, drunk off his ass alone in the dark as the curtain closes. And it's just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a statement <laughs> yeah just staring into the abyss like I, yep. yeah that's exa- you're just you're left just gut punched because you just watched a man's life unfold and it has been both optimistic and pessimistic it's weirdly and yeah. it has ended in abject failure abject failure and he knows it he knows it right. And oh, yeah. that—that that is what's sad—is that he right. listening to him. He's done. He's completely done. Like, you, like look at the set dressing. He's not going to improve his life. He starts to—he starts to dictate again on his 69th birthday, and he just stops. He just throws the tape away. He's like, I can't even do this. And he—he yeah. he would rather, rather than chronicle his sham of a life that he has at 69, he would rather put on this tape about the uh intimate exchange he had with the girl in the punt right and it's just profoundly sad oh yeah he's yeah profoundly he, he, sad there's no point in in talking about this life there's no point in talking about what's going on with me and that you know leads to the title of the play it's his last tape and that could mean you know this is literally <laughs> his final one or it could be in reference to the last one that he recorded but it at least to me, it's very much, this is his, no more tapes are coming after yeah. this one. I mean, We're not he gonna picks get... up the current one, chucks it in the trash. He so he's not even going to bother recording it. He's like, man, I'm not, I'm not going to be around to listen to it. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. And w- when he did that, it's, it's like, it's not symbolic of death, but it's certainly him giving up. Like he's, he's, okay with giving up that's what it is like he doesn't even have the will to make new memories anymore or to to even chronicle new memories because he's accepted the fact that he doesn't have anything to offer he has nothing to offer anymore what is there to like what does he talk about whenever he starts to dictate he talks about what the 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 prostitute that he sees Mm. once every so often that's pretty much it yeah you know i mean what did i do this year uh let's see (laughs) right yeah he has nothing to offer and that is whoa man that's sad (laughs) oh yeah it's (laughs) look i don't know if there's if any if anything beckett's ever written is happy in any way but this one is particularly uh dark it, it, I mean, that ending alone, it's one of my favorite endings of any of his plays because the tableau that he strikes, it's brilliant. The stage direction that he gives coupled with the very specific bit of dialogue that he has, it's just so poetic and oh, so it, Beckett. It just <laughs> nails it. It absolutely Quite. nails it. And the production that I watched with, with John Hurt, his mm. empty stare into the darkness, you just your heart just shatters. You're like, whoa wow that was a that was a dense hour i just spent 
the long nine pages, my friend. Again, it's nine pages. Nine pages. Nine pages, your soul is ripped out of your chest. (laughs) Right. And like most of the funny business, um, it's over pretty early. True. Yeah, he gets it over with quick. He's like, hey, welcome to my show. Here's an old man slipping on a banana peel. That's not it, though. (laughs) It's just the back half. The back, playing the back nine. In the dark, gets you. He gets you comfortable off at the beginning. So you're like, Ooh. "Oh, this is going to be a fun little jaunty Beckett romp," and then he just kicks you in the nuts. The last <laughs> <does>. six pages. <laughs> it's brutal. It really, it's brutal. But it's it. Yeah, that tableau of the the dialogue, not with the fire in me, and his empty stare. It, it's you know what it is. It's the perfect punctuation of Proust. Right. It's that final mm-hmm. punctuation that brings it all together and makes it all make sense on that mm-hmm. final note. Cause that's what it's a final note and you just fade out and you're like, wow, that's okay. There is a finality to it. Whereas True. some of, some of Beckett's plays can kind of be open-ended or ambiguous or like, no, yeah, no this sure. is, this is final. This is, this is the end. That's a really good point because yeah, none of Beckett's stuff ever ends. There's, there's no concrete ending where it's like, okay, and then the character dies, which most of his, not most, a lot of his stuff kind of foreshadows that once the curtain closes, this person's probably going to die not very long after this. But yeah, there's always this kind of very ambiguous kind of ending. But the way that he writes this, while he doesn't explicitly say what happens or, you know, crap doesn't get up. He doesn't go and do something the way that he structures the non ending. It it very much gives it an ending. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty. uh, Yeah. You just, you you watch it end and you're like, I'm glad it ended. (laughs) Right. I'm glad to see what came next. (laughs) I don't want, I don't want act two. I don't want act two. (laughs) This one does not need. In Act Two, I'm no, glad he, he, he stuck it to just the one monologue. That is more than enough. That's that's plenty. <laughs> the <laughs> so we were talking briefly before we started recording about how you know we keep trying to mine hope. We that's whole point of this was to mine hope from these inherently hopeless texts. Yeah. And uh, this one was tough. This yeah. one was particularly tough but i i jotted down right before we started like right before we started talking what my best shot at what i think the hope can be and what what i've mined is this that folks have to accept that they're not going to beat the odds and i that sounds defeatist it sounds bleak and defeatist but you like the idea of chasing your dreams and changing the world, it sounds great. And it makes for wonderful quotes from very successful people who operate in a totally different reality. I'm not one of these people, and most folks aren't. <laughs> no. So living your best life doesn't have to necessarily mean living your perfect life. And the earlier that you accept that falling somewhere against or amongst the majority can still be a successful life worth living, the sooner you can stop judging your younger selves for failing to put you in some kind of fantasy life 
that only a very fraction of the population, a very small fraction of the people in the world ever attain. And that's not an excuse to stop working towards your goals, but it is permission for you to take pride in wherever you eventually land and the work that your younger selves put in to get you there. So if you set the precedent now of looking back on your younger self or younger selves with kinder eyes, that way in 10 years, you'll be more likely to let yourself off the hook for whatever dumb shit you do in the interim. <laughs> right, I'm almost 30. I don't know what's coming in the next 10 years, but I got 10 years worth of dumb shit in me. I know I do. I know I do. <laughs> we've, been, we've been given this gift of being able to remember the past and it's inevitable that we look back. You can't not look back. Memories are important. They, they yeah. influence so much. But what is not inevitable is that we look back with disdain. It's so easy to laugh at, make fun of, be embittered by missed opportunities and the poor choices of our past selves. N nostalgia, good and bad, is okay in small doses. But what's hard possible and arguably imperative to living well is to use hindsight not to live vicariously through but to inform our future it takes a shift in thinking that is difficult to do but like how miraculous is it that we have that ability like we just need to yeah. appreciate that we have the ability to look back and not do so with so much negativity and i'm as guilty of it as anybody else oh sure oh yeah that's i think you hit the nail right on the head with that best i can do man <laughs> if that i think that's really the only hope that can be found in in a text that's like this is what we often do or and what we will continue to be doing with beckett's pieces is that we find the hope by examining what the characters didn't do yeah and yeah going, i'm gonna do what this guy didn't because uh it seems like every choice he made kind of fucked him up yeah but you're right we it really kind of boils down to we just need to take it easier on ourselves <laughs> we just be nicer to ourselves and it sounds like a very simple thing but it's very much not <laughs> it's not but but I, what is important is that what and what i'm very purposely put in there is that it is not an excuse to stop working. It doesn't let you off the hook for being held accountable. It doesn't let you off the hook for being a terrible person. One of my least favorite things that people do is that they have the, they, they do something inexcusable or just rude or petty. And they say, well, I'm, I'm such a bad person. Oh man. Like you don't get to do that. You don't, right. you don't get to do that, one, because it's shitty to everybody around you. But in five years, in 10 years, you're going to look back on yourself. And assuming you've had any kind of maturity in that time, you're going to look back on yourself with such negativity for letting yourself off the hook by saying you're a bad person that like, why not turn that around now? Like, why not just like not be a bad person? It's not, like, why not just not be a bad person? I don't know. I like, say, hmm, I'm going to not be that way. <laughs> just fundamentally change who you are. Not that big of a deal. Right? <laughs> How hard is that? Yeah. No, I think, yeah, I think you're, 
you're 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 spot on with your you're finding the the little diamond in the in the rough here. <laughs> but I it took a lot of digging. It's, the, it's fair enough. I think it's the only diamond that exists in this particular rough. But <laughs> luckily, you you were able to to pick it out. I think I think I texted this to you in one of the, the days leading up to this, and we were talking about this show. But it, in reading it again and watching it again, it very much reminds me of my favorite Shakespeare uh, play, which is Richard II, and in particular the final scene of that play. I don't know how familiar you are with that particular one, but he is very much a character who is the king, uh, but he isn't good at being the king, and he very much doesn't want to be the king, but he is convinced that he has divine right, that he has been chosen by God to lead. And so he's constantly conflicted throughout this show, being forced to do this thing. He thinks he's being forced to do it, that he very much doesn't want to do but does want to do, and it's this whole internal conflict. And eventually he's overthrown and deposed uh, by someone else who is Henry IV, and then that leads all of the other fun Henry history plays to go through. But the play ends with him in prison, and he has this final monologue where he uh, talks about how he's looking back on his life, and one of the lines in the piece, he says, I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. And that's probably of anything that he's ever written my favorite line. I have the scene mark actually tattooed on my body to always remind me of that little sequence itself because I think it's a fun two ways to look at it. When you say, I wasted time and now doth time waste me, it's a reminder to not give up on your goals, to not just take a break and kick back and say like, ah, well, fuck it. It is a reminder to work and to keep moving forward. But at the same time, it's also a reminder to be kind to yourself to take it easy on yourself because you can waste time in your effortlessly pursuit to try not to waste it. You can look back and you can breeze past the things that are actually important in your attempt to try and get something that you think is more important. And Richard comes to that conclusion at the end. He says, I'm at the end of my rope. I've wasted my entire time and now time is wasting away with me. And I think that that is a very succinct, direct analogy to this play and he crap wasted his time and now time is just (laughs) fucking wasting him away and the lesson that we can take is don't waste your time don't give up on your goals but at the same time maybe uh give yourself a break every now and then and 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 take a moment to enjoy (laughs) some happiness take it easy (laughs) take it easy take it easy that's that should be the new name of the podcast take it easy easy, the beckett series (laughs) (laughs) People would be like, what? I don't think what? what what plays are they reading? <laughs> <laughs> it it is it's a depressing play. And I'm sure I'll I've said that already for every one of his shows. Um <laughs> I'm gonna say it a hundred times more, but what he does so well is he writes a character in crap that it personifies like all of that stuff that he wrote all of crap's downfalls are you can you can pick somebody out of a crowd now in 2020 and they're guilty of the exact same things that he is you yeah. can pick anybody you could pick president of the united states you could pick you know me you could pick some dude out of me like you, it, it's such a relatable character because people are so negative 
Like they're just negative. They're just negative, man. It's true. I mean, so many times when we look at Beckett's stuff, we can, at least I can, can sometimes get swept up and like, ooh, this guy, man, he hated the world. He, he, he was so angry at people. Like, what's going on? And then, you know, you go outside and you're like, well, okay, I get it. Yeah, I get like, it. <laughs> it makes sense now. I, yeah. I can see where he's coming from. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can also relate, you know what? At the same time, I can relate to crap just wanting to sit inside and talking to a mic. Like, well, what am I doing right now? Sitting inside talking to a microphone and I'm having the time of my life. I would not right. rather be doing <laughs> hardly anything. I want to be outside talking to people. I want to be outside interacting with people that sucks man like that's not no i don't want to do that and it's because people are negative i'm negative right i you just heard me blather on for an hour and a half about how negative i am i who wants to interact with that and i don't want to interact with other people. I mean, like we're just all repelling each other we're just all repelling <laughs> It's no wonder the world is in the state that it is. We all just hate everything all of the time. Right. Well, and so we're we're in that constant state of repelling, of, of pushing each other away. And that, I think Beckett would probably agree with you. That's human nature. That is just, that's how we be. That's what we do. But the moral then in his philosophy and his philosophies of his plays is that these characters, while they do repel from one another, they never accept or even understand or come to terms with the fact that they are doing that. And I think the simple acknowledgement of that and recognition of that inherent repelling makes you want to stop doing it, makes you want to, in some capacity, rise up above it. And yep. that drive, that willingness to resist is what makes life worth living. And I think that's kind of the overall philosophy of his text is that that internal struggle, that fight that we have within ourselves is the point of us being alive and on this planet because his characters don't have that fight. They never fight against it. They just give into it. And the lives that he depicts that they lead are awful. <laughs> <laughs> Not great. Could use some Not improvement. Not to say that, right. Not, he, Beckett isn't saying that our lives are any better. But he's certainly saying that these folks, man, they're in a fucked up place. Yeah, he's saying that we have the potential to be better, right? right. And that is up to us to mine that potential. Like we have these gifts, like we have these gifts that have been given to us. And especially now in 2020, we have far more gifts afforded to us than even in Beckett's time 60 years oh, sure. ago, 70 years ago. The, the opportunity to rise above it the opportunity to not be as negative when there's so much ability to spread positivity. And yet here we are, you know, like it's interesting that you say like, well, it's the internal struggle that makes life worth living that we could be better, but are we, <laughs> you know, like, here we are, here we are. And, I, you know, right there, that right there is, uh, that's my own self being negative, right? Well, but that's just me taking in the world around me and saying, there's more people that are not trying to overcome that impulse right. than 
there are that are trying to overcome that impulse. Yeah. And I, that's depressing. <laughs> it is. I think you're right. I think, I don't know, it's certainly my perception too of the, the current world around us. There are more and more people in the real world that are directly mirroring Beckett characters because they, they don't have that, or at least they don't seem to be illustrating that struggle anymore. They don't care. They don't seem to express a desire to be better. They just lean into the shit and they're just like, hey, the world is shit. Everything's awful. I'm going to take a, a big old bite of it myself. I'm going to get <laughs> mine. I'm going to get mine. And that's kind of what he's warning against in, in this stuff. And I don't know. It doesn't seem like many people are heeding the warning. People need to read more Beckett. <laughs> yeah, they need to. And listen to this podcast so we can tell you to read more Beckett. Right? They don't even need to read it. Just listen to what we have to say. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, they'll tell us what it means. <laughs> you can listen to this dude talk about some good dude taking a dump for 15 minutes or not being able they to take a about, dump. For... Talked about crap for an hour and 20 minutes. I don't know what, <laughs> what the fuck's going on there. <laughs> Bananas and poop. That's the name of the new podcast. Ooh, that could be like the, the spinoff one. When we monetize this, that can be... <laughs> Our Patreon subscribers, they get like an extra 30 minutes. That'll be the name of it. It'll be bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cody, final thoughts, closing feelings on this, this text. I mean, like you said at the beginning of this, there's so many other avenues that we can, we can go down and, and discussing this. But it seemed to me that the ideas that we hit on on this were the ones that were very much eating away at the two of us <laughs> these were the ones yeah. that really stuck out that we wanted to we wanted to dig into yeah same as normal i came in here and got to download my dysfunction onto a beckett script right what are you here uh, for yeah <laughs> you were here for it you just have to listen to it take it in uh no this has probably been this has probably been my favorite of the three um that we've done so far not not because it's shorter or anything just because it's it's really powerful. It's really, it's, it's really powerful. It packs a punch, like pound for pound, nine pages. It packs a punch. And yep. um, I really, I really respect people that I really respect writing that can do so much in so little because it is like it, you read it. It's another one that in my opinion, you really have to watch to get the kids. Like you said, you, yeah. You, read it in 12 minutes right <laughs> but when you watch a production of it that really gives it life which is the cliche but whatever like it really brings it off the page and you can understand what he's trying to convey a whole lot more um yeah it it's a brilliant show it really is it's a brilliant show and when i'm 69 years old or however old i am i want to do a production of it <laughs> That's the time to do it. No, I, I agree with you. This is, this is a great example of Beckett at his best, I think. It's clean. It's got a nice blend of the stab you in the heart and make you laugh at the same time. And he very clearly explains his philosophy and his thesis on memory and life and a close analysis of it, close watching of it. We're able to find those little diamonds and mind some little bits of hope maybe we need to give ourselves a break take it easy on ourselves <laughs> don't look back in anger <laughs> oh. 
and uh, don't be like crap. Don't be that's like the, crap. That's the main lesson here. Well, I, I appreciate, as always, sitting and chatting with me. It's a lot of fun. Always. I don't know what our next one will be now. There's still a big one hanging over our heads that we haven't <laughs> talked about yet. I'm kind of scared. To kind of avoided that albatross that thus far. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to go there just yet. might want to play around with some of these shorter ones some more because these are the nine page ones are nice to to dig into instead of those giant two act behemoths but we'll see we'll see what happens we'll see what's in store i'm down for whatever man you just tell me what to read fair enough well i think that's where we'll end it thanks again always thanks for having me man Thanks for listening to Everything is Trash, a Beckett discussion. Follow us on social media at Everything is Trash Podcast. Subscribe, download, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like a deeper dive into this particular Beckett piece, check out the links in the episode description. Those intro-outro vibes are courtesy of Derek Heath. Find more of his work at dheath.bandcamp.com. Our killer logo designs were worked up by Adam Hike and Joel Rose. Follow them on Instagram at ahike12 and at joelroseArts.